What a privilege it is for us to partner with these great missionaries all around the world, these men and women who have given their lives so that the scriptures can be given to peoples who don't have them. And one of the things that always amazes me is the joy when a people group gets the scripture for the first time. What do they do? They party. They have a parade, they celebrate, they have music, they dance, they shout for joy because the scriptures, the word of God is in their own mother tongue. And I'm excited about the fact that we are partnering with this specific group, the seed group, to get the word of God out to a, a tribe, a people group in Africa that needs the word so desperately. But I hope that you and I have the same response when we get to hear the word of God. We have so many copies in our homes, we begin to take it for granted. I don't want to encourage you to live without the scriptures for a couple weeks, but what if you had to? What if you had no access to the Bible and then finally it came? I think you would respond with great joy. And I trust we all will today as we have the privilege of hearing God speak to us from his holy, trustworthy word. Let's pray. Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law, truths that will transform our lives. We pray in the wonderful name of Christ our Lord and all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Well, I'm sure that the most famous comet in all the world is Halley's Comet. Here's a picture of it when it was last seen to planet Earth, the inner solar system that is around our region, back in 1986. It's interesting, though, that this particular comet has been followed by stargazers and uh, astronomers all around the world since 240 years before Jesus Christ. It is the first periodic comet, meaning one that comes back periodically and that can be viewed. But it wasn't until the 1700s that uh, people realized it was the same comet that they were seeing. And the guy who discovered that was Edmund Haley, and thus the comet has his name. And it is a periodic comet in that it comes back about every 75 years, which means a person could see the comet twice in their lifetime. Here's another picture from two brothers, the Nielsens, of the particular comet that was revealed in 1986. By the way, in 1986, this was the first time it appeared in the space age, and we actually had spacecraft that uh, could view the comet and test it and get close to it and learned a whole lot more about Halley's Comet than we have ever known before. So if the comet comes back, um, if it, 1986 was the last, and we're looking at another 75 years or so, that's 2061, another 40 years. I'm not going to see it. And during 1986, I remember uh, that I actually went out to see the comet, and this is what I saw back in 1986, stars. I didn't see anything that looked like a comet. 
And I wasn't very interested. Here's a momentous appearing of this great celestial phenomenon. And I didn't see it and went back to bed, I guess. And now I don't get to see it when it comes back. But if you're a young astronomer in your 20s, I bet you can't wait till 2061 because you're going to have, you're going to get a chance to see this comet like it's never been seen before. With whatever discoveries happen between now and then, maybe you'll be up in the spacecraft actually looking at the thing. Now, there is a connection when we turn to the Holy Scriptures of Hebrews chapter 9 about some great appearance and maybe missing it the first time and maybe not seeing it the second time. Hebrews chapter 9, as we open the Scriptures, let me remind you that last week we talked about three important words, all the same word that was revealed, this idea of clean or cleanse. Hebrews 9 is talking about the first covenant and the earthly tabernacle. And all the regulations of that system could clean you outwardly or make you ceremonially clean. But it could not cleanse your heart. It could not cleanse your soul. But the blood of Christ that is the seal of the second covenant, can cleanse you. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? I like the translation, the new living translation, where it says, by the power of the eternal spirit, Christ offered himself to God as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That is so well said. And did you notice what just jumps out at you from that phrase, that paraphrase? The triune God is involved in our salvation. It is Christ who offers himself as the sacrifice and offers it as the high priest to God the Father who planned this whole scheme of redemption. But somehow the eternal spirit is involved in the process to ratify, to execute, to make it happen. And so because of the eternal spirit, Based on the work of Christ, the Father receives the atonement of the Son, and that perfect sacrifice results in our sins being forgiven. There are a few places in the New Testament that so eloquently describe the gospel and the sacrifice of Christ as we read in the book of Hebrews. Now, we want to press on, and one of the major themes that we're going to see is this theme of the blood of Christ. Look at verse 15. For this reason, because Christ can cleanse our conscience so that we might serve him, cleanse from dead works to serve the living God, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant 
so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. There's some important words in that uh, wonderful verse. The, the word mediator is a word that we need to think about a little bit. A mediator is a go-between. It's an individual, an arbitrator, that can sit between two offended parties and work to make reconciliation. This same word uh, was used earlier, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6. In fact, the ministry Jesus received is superior to the first covenant, of which he is the mediator of the second covenant, the superior one. And the new covenant is established on better promises. So you have a superior high priest, you have a superior sacrifice, you have a superior tabernacle, you have a superior promises, and Jesus, Jesus is the mediator of the new. The, the mediator of the old covenant, we're told, was Moses and angels. But the book of Hebrews says that Jesus is better than both, superior to both. And we have a great mediator between God and man. Probably the oldest book in the Bible is the book of Job. And we hear the query of Job centuries before the book of Hebrews was written. Job chapter 9, verse 33. If only there were someone to mediate between us, Job laments. That is between himself and God. Someone to bring us together. If only there was someone. But then apparently later on in his book, in chapter 16, that issue is resolved in his heart and mind when he says, even now my witness is in heaven, my advocate is on high, my intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out my tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. And what a great description of Jesus, the advocate, the mediator, the intercessor, and the friend. And you and I don't have to go it alone. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. What a great verse, 1 Timothy 2, 5. You know, Moses couldn't mediate because he isn't God. The angels couldn't mediate because they're not human beings. But Christ is both God and man, the perfect mediator, and the one who offers that perfect sacrifice. We read in Hebrews chapter 12 that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and sprinkles of blood that is better than the blood of Abel, speaking louder than the blood of Abel, and more powerful than the blood of bulls and goats. So for this reason, he's the mediator. And he's the mediator of those who are called, verse 15. This word has already been used in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 1. Holy brethren, we share a heavenly calling, and we are the called. 
If you do a study on this word called in Scripture, you'll find out it falls into two uh, categories, two main categories. The first is the broadest, and it is the sense that everyone is called. The gospel call goes out to everyone. Whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For God so loved the world, if any believes, they'll not perish. That's the call, general, going out to everyone. But there's a narrow category defined by those who accept the call, who are then termed the called, or the elect of God. It refers to Christians who have heard the call and responded. But as it says in Romans chapter 8, this is an unusual group. The ones he foreknew, he also predestined. And the ones he predestined, he also called. And the ones he called, he also justified. And the ones he justified, he also glorified. This is a term for true believers. Now you say, well, I don't quite understand that whole issue of the elect of God or the called of God, nor do I. But when did you stop believing the things that you couldn't understand? When did you stop trusting and loving the things you don't comprehend? If that were true, there would be no love in a marriage. For man does not comprehend woman. And never will. And you will never understand God perfectly. But I'm going to believe what he says, even though I don't quite understand it. And this scripture says that Christ is the mediator of the new covenant for those who are called. And the called will receive the promised inheritance, the eternal inheritance, just like earlier, I think it was in verse 12, it talked about eternal redemption. And Jesus has died as a ransom. There's that word redeem, to set free. Set free from the sins committed under the first covenant, those who have believed in him. Now, what you have to understand is that the, uh, the basis of the new covenant is the death of Christ, and the seal of the new covenant is the blood of Christ. But when he died, his death was retroactive. And the, and the atoning work of the human priests from Aaron, descended from Aaron in the Judaistic system, approved by God and given through Moses, could never take sin away. So when Christ died, his death covered those sins under the new covenant. It's going to cover the sins in the past, and it's futuristic because it covers all the sins of the future. That's how amazing the death of Christ is. Priests offered an atonement for the sins that had been committed since the last time that they had met. Christ dies once for all for the sins forever. So the new covenant with the sacrifice of Christ that, can, that is contained as the heart of it is the answer to the failure of the first covenant, to its shortcomings. And we see in the blood of Christ, this powerful blood, 
that indeed cleanses from all sin. Christ is the answer to your situation. So, he says in verse 16, in the case of a will or a covenant, it's necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is only in force when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put, to an effect, put into effect without blood. So we're talking about a will, which is a little bit different than a covenant. A will is a legally binding uh, declaration, the final directives of someone who writes up the will, but it's not valid until that person dies. And a covenant is similar. It's an ancient Near Eastern treaty that requires the sacrifice usually of an animal to seal the agreement. And until death takes place, the covenant is not effective. So, verse 19, when Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves, together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Now, what the writer of Hebrews is doing here is he's quoting, he will be quoting from Exodus 25, but he's also taking some information from the book of Numbers, chapter 19, about the whole process that took place. Apparently, when the blood was taken from the animals, sometimes it was mixed with water, perhaps to add to the quantity and also to um, keep it from coagulating uh, so that they could sprinkle the blood on everything, on the scroll, on the tabernacle, on the instruments, and on the people. The blood was no good unless it was applied. And the way they would sprinkle that is to uh, take some scarlet wool and the branches of hyssop. Now, this has been used throughout the Bible to describe about the application of the blood. When we talk about the Passover from Exodus chapter 12, they would use hyssop to touch the uh, outer posts the lintel posts and side posts of the door before the death angel came through. And in Psalm 51 that talks about confession of sin and forgiveness, purge me with hyssop. It's not that the branches have any power, but it's what they do that brings the powerful result. And apparently, scholars tell us that they would take a cedar piece of wood and attach the branch of hyssop to the wood and then wrap around with the scarlet wool to create an instrument of application for the blood. It's a term for a tool. And they would take that tool and sprinkle everything. As it says in verse 20, he said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded to, for you to keep, Exodus 24. In the same way, Moses sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be sprinkled with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So, 
It was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things on earth to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices and better blood than these. So as Moses makes the application in the new covenant, he elevates the fact that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And the book of Leviticus says in chapter 17 in verse 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. God says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I've given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Back when George Washington was living, he was ill, and I don't remember exactly the problem, but they called in the doctors, and the doctors performed a uh, procedure that was very accepted at that time called bloodletting. In other words, they would cut the patient and then with a basin catch the blood and allow so much blood to come out and then they would stop the bleeding and it was their hopes that they would pull the bad blood out of the person and the person would heal. What a dumb idea. It's interesting that the best of science in certain periods of time doesn't quite get it. Now we know that the life of the flesh is in the blood, which was already said to us, but we we don't take blood out. We either purify that blood or put new blood in, right? Right. Scripture would have given us a hint long before this. Don't take the life out. The life of the flesh is in the blood. So animal sacrifices had to be made to seal that first covenant, but the second covenant has Better blood. Verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ purge not just the outward ceremonial person, but the inward heart and the guilt of a conscience? By the way, if a party was unfaithful in making a covenant where blood was shed and an animal was slain, And usually, to ratify the covenant, they would separate the animal and walk in between the two halves. If you were unfaithful to your covenant, you were saying, may it happen to me as it's happened to this animal. May I be split down the middle and divided. Some say that that's the basis for our wedding practice of having the groom's side and the bride's side And the wedding covenant is secured as the couple walk down the middle. I should add that to a wedding ceremony, shouldn't I? You've just now walked down between these two halves. If you are unfaithful to your covenant, may you be split down the middle. I guess I won't. But that's what it means. It's serious business. And Jesus, to ratify the new covenant, gave his life shed his blood. And it became a proverbial saying among the rabbis, without the shedding of blood, no remission of sin. Verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary, one made with hands, human hands, that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, the true one. 
now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way a high priest enters the holy place every year with blood that is not his own. If that were the case, then Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. And here, the writer is simply saying what he said before. We have a better temple. We have a better sanctuary. It's heaven itself. The high priest goes into a man-made temple. Jesus, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek, goes into heaven. Solomon's temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Herod's temple was destroyed by the Romans. It was still in existence when this book was written. But a few months or a few years later, it would be totally destroyed. They could still point to it and say, but there's our temple. And God would say, it won't be there for long. Because human temples are insufficient. Don't trust your soul to a man-made religion. Or for something that was just intended to be temporary and is a shadow and copy of the real. The believer's sanctuary is in heaven. His father is in heaven. His savior is seated at the right hand of the father in heaven. His citizenship is in heaven, Philippians chapter 3. And let your treasure be in heaven also, Matthew 6. That's home. And we're not home yet. We get so attached to this world, don't we? I do. So attached to temporary things imperfect things now we need to appreciate what God has given I don't think it's the proper uh, response for a believer to go through this world always complaining well things aren't perfect look at that beautiful sunrise yeah it's going down (laughs) tomorrow will be cloudy look at those gorgeous mountains yeah but I don't live there Christians ought to rejoice in God's great world. But don't get attached to it because this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. My citizenship is up there. My treasures are up there. My Savior is up there. My Father is up there. And that's where I'm going by God's grace. But here's the thing I want to emphasize. It's the word appear. Look at verse 26. Middle of the verse. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. What a great statement. He has appeared to take away sin. There was a clear purpose this is in the past this is historic our faith is resting on historic events like the incarnation Jesus being revealed by the way the Greek word behind all of this very popular word has that idea of showing or revealing in this appearing something that wasn't seen and now it is revealed he revealed himself At his birth, not many saw that, 
He revealed his power and his divinity in his amazing miracles, and yet many did not believe. And he revealed himself on the cross. If I be lifted up, I will draw all people to me. And the death of Christ on the cross has drawn the attraction of the world. He appeared. He was revealed. The revelation of God in human form is what we celebrate at Christmas. But why did he appear? To take away sin. That's why the manger is always connected to the cross. Why did he come? To take away sin. The old covenant just covered it. The new covenant does away with it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't just cover up. Won't come back next year to offer another layer of covering. He's expiated our sin. He's removed the stain. And it is forever gone because of Christ. He appeared. It's historic. When did he appear? At the culmination of the ages, at the end of the age, 2,000 years ago was the beginning of the end. You say, wow, it's taken a long time only because of our, only from our calendar, not from his. Been a day or two. Christ, the coming of Christ, ushered in the great messianic era and all history is flowing toward the culmination of the Messiah's kingdom, which he revealed when he came and is working to expand it right now. Here's a verse I've taken out of context. Not that I did it improperly, but look at verse 27. Just as... Is it, is it is appointed that a man wants to die, just as man is destined to die once, and after that, to face judgment. I don't know how many times I've quoted that all by itself. And it's true. I read somewhere where a scholar said, you don't need the Bible to tell you that you're going to die, but you need the Bible to tell you what's going to happen after death. Right? It is appointed unto man to once to, for once to die and after this a judgment. But that was just kind of a, a, a subordinate statement to support the main idea that Jesus died once because it is appointed unto man once to die. He died. And after this, the judgment. But Jesus took judgment in his death. He died and paid for our judgment. For the rest of us, it's appointed unto us to die once. And immediately after this, judgment. The inference is clear. There is no reincarnation. And there is no second chance to change your status after death. If you're holding out for a second chance This verse tells you you've got one chance now before you die. Trust him now. Because after you die, judgment. But then it goes on to say in verse 28, so Christ was sacrificed once for all to take away sins. 
He takes away the sins of many. Again, in the broadest sense, I believe Jesus died for everyone and his blood is powerful to cleanse everyone. But when it comes to the actual forgiveness of sins, it's just for those who put their faith and trust in him. And so you can honestly say he takes away the sins of many. He takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29, and he takes away the sins of many. I hope you're part of that many. But notice in verse 24, we'll go back for a moment. Here's this, another appearing. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear. Jesus is now appearing. That makes me think of walking down Main Street and seeing a, a, a theater with a marquee saying, now appearing. And maybe I'll go there to see a celebrity that I might want to see or a movie that's just come out. It hasn't been out before. It hasn't been here before. But now it's here. Now appearing. It'll be made manifest. You can see it clearly and plainly. And Jesus Christ is now appearing before the Father. He first took that blood after his death and went into heaven, the true sanctuary, and appeared for us before the Father and offered the atonement that the Father received. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The very fact that the Father took him into heaven and seated him at the right hand of the throne indicates that he was well pleased with the atonement of Christ. And he is still appearing in the presence of God at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Now, he's made a few periodic appearings like he did to Paul after the resurrection. But indeed, Jesus is in the presence of the Father waiting for one final appearing. And that's verse 28. He shall appear. He has appeared to take away salvation. He is appearing on our behalf in God's presence. And he shall appear, verse 28, to bring salvation. Verse, uh, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. By the way, this particular Greek word appear is where we get the root of it gives us our word optometrist. So it's the idea of seeing and manifestation or clearly seeing. This is the word that was used after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared first to Cephas and then to the 12. Then he appeared to over 500 believers. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, he appeared to me as one born out of due time. Jesus literally appeared. And he is literally going to come back visibly to this earth. And he's coming for those who are waiting for him. 2 Timothy 4.8, there's a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, 
will give to me in that day, Paul says, and not to me only, but to all of those who love and are longing for his appearing. Don't give up meeting together with other believers, as is the habit of some, Hebrews 10 tells us, but encourage each other. And do it all the more as you see the day coming. By the way, there's two days you need to be concerned about. The day you die, you say, I don't know when that is, still be concerned. (laughs) And the day when he comes, you say, I don't know when that is, still be concerned. Both are going to happen. My going to him may precede his coming for me. But either way, I need to be prepared to meet the Lord. Titus chapter 2 says, it is the glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He will appear. Where's the promise of his coming? It's taken 2,000 years. Everything has gone on since the beginning, and nothing has changed. No, really? What about the flood? That kind of changed things. And the coming of Christ. Oh, he's coming. His word will never fall to the ground void. He's just taking longer so you might get saved. That's why he's taking so long. Oh, he will appear. He doesn't come back every 75 years. And when he comes back this time, it won't be like straining your eyes to see a comet in the stars that doesn't appear to be visible. When he comes again, every eye will see him. And I need to be ready for that coming. 1 John chapter 3 says, This blessed hope in my heart purifies me. When I know that he's coming back, it purifies me. In other words, looking for his coming strengthens our hearts to go through difficult times and purifies our walk so that we walk godly because he's coming. And we can get through the hard times without giving up because he's coming. The Israelites on the Day of Atonement saw their high priest go in with the blood that came from the animals and they waited make it if he breaks the law he'll die he's in the holy presence of God do you hear the bells should we tug on the rope to get him back and they were waiting to see the high priest come out of the temple and I I have to believe it was a glorious rejoicing (laughs) because my sins are covered you and I need to be waiting for our savior to come Because he is. He appeared to take away sin. He appears before the Father on our behalf. And he is going to come to appear to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Many years ago, a man went to the train station in New York City. He was going to say goodbye to some young men who were going off to World War II. And he saw one of his friends standing there. and said, why are you here? He said, well, my boy was off to war. And I heard that he's back in the States and he's coming home. 
And the man said, that's great. He's coming back tonight then, is he? He said, well, I don't know. All I know is he's coming from the west and he's going to arrive at 10.30 p.m. And so I'm here. And if he doesn't come today, I'm going to be here tomorrow night. And if he doesn't come tomorrow, I'll be here. I'll be here the very next night. And I'll be here every night until my son appears. Wouldn't it be great if we had that same longing and expectation for the coming of our Savior, whose coming is near? Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us this day to grasp the wonderful truth that Jesus died for our sins and appeared before all. And that he secretly appeared before the Father, making atonement for our sin that was accepted. And now he appears before the Father praying for us. And one day will appear on planet earth again to bring salvation to those who are longing to see him. Lord, hasten that day and make us faithful until you come. In Jesus' name, amen.